2. It could be said, with several levels of truthful meaning, that when Carlo Bassavi outdid himself with a celebration for his victory over the murderer of his daughter. The floating grave was thrown open. The guards remained at their posts, but discipline slackened agreeably. Huge alchemical lanterns were hauled up under the silk awnings on the topmost decks of the harbour-locked galleon. They lit up the wooden waste beneath the dark sky and shone like beacons through the fog. Runners were sent out to the last mistake for food and wine. The tavern was rapidly emptied of all its edibles, most of its casks, and every single one of its patrons. They streamed toward the wooden waste, drunk or sober, united in curious expectation. The guards on the quay eyed the guests pouring in, but did little else. Men and women without obvious weapons concealed beneath their clothes were passed through without so much as a cursory search. Flush with victory, the copper had decided to be magnanimous in more ways than one. This was to Locke's benefit. Hooded and bearded and thoroughly begrimed, he slipped in with a huge crowd of cauldron cutthroats making their rowdy way across the walkway to Barsavi's galleon, lit like a pleasure galley from some romantic tale of the pashas of the Bronze Sea. The floating grave was packed with men and women. Kappa Barsavi sat on his raised chair, surrounded by all of his inner circle, his red-faced, shouting sons, his most powerful surviving garistas, his quiet, watchful Berangius twins. Locke had to push and shove and utter curses to make his way into the heart of the fortress. He nudged himself into a corner near the main doors to the ballroom and watched the affair from this position, aching and uncomfortable but grateful just to be able to claim a vantage point. The balconies were spilling over with tufts from all the gangs and Camor. The rowdiness was growing by the minute. The heat was incredible and the smell. Locke felt pressed against the wall by the weight of odours. Wet wool and sweated through cotton, wine and wine breath, hair oils and leather. It was just past the first hour of the morning when Barsavi suddenly rose from his chair and held up a single hand. Attentiveness spread outward like a wave. Right people nudged one another into silence and pointed to the kappa. It took less than a minute for the echoing chaos of the celebration to peter down to a soft murmur. Barsavi nodded appreciatively. I trust we're enjoying ourselves. There was a general outburst of cheers, applause and foot stomping. Locke privately wondered how wise that really was in a ship of any sort. He was careful to applaud along with the crowd. Feels marvellous to be out from under a cloud, doesn't it? Another cheer. Locke scratched at his temporary beard, now damp with sweat. There was a sudden sharp pain in his stomach, right where one of the younger Barsavis had given him particular consideration with a fist. The heat and the smell were triggering strange, tickly feelings of nausea in the back of his throat, and he'd had enough of that particular sensation to last the rest of his life. Sourly, he coughed into his hands and prayed for just a few more hours of strength. One of the Barangius sisters stepped over beside the kappa, her shark's teeth bangles shining in the light of the hall chandeliers, and whispered into his ear. He listened for a few seconds, and then he smiled. Sherin, he shouted, proposes that I allow her and her sister to entertain us. Shall I? The answering cheer was twice as forceful, 
and twice as genuine to Locke's ears as anything yet heard. The wooden walls reverberated with it, and Locke flinched. Let's have a teeth show, then! All was chaos for the next few minutes. Dozens of Barsavi's people pushed revelers back, clearing an area at the centre of the floor about ten yards on a side. Revelers were pressed up the stairs until the balconies creaked beneath their weight. Observation holes were cranked open so those on the top deck could peer down at the proceedings. Locke was pushed back into his corner more firmly than ever. Men with hooked poles drew up the wooden panels of the floor, revealing the dark water of Camor Bay. A thrill of anticipation and alarm passed through the crowd at the thought of what might be swimming down there. The unquiet spirits of eight full crowns, for one thing, thought Locke. As the final panels in the centre of the opening square were removed, almost everyone present could see the little support platforms on which they'd rested, not one wider than a man's hand spread. They were spaced about five feet apart, Barsavi's arena for his own private teeth shows, a challenge for any contrarechiala, even a pair as experienced as the Barangius sisters. Sherin and Raiza, old hands at teasing a crowd, were stripping out of their leather doublets, braces, and collars. They took their graceful time while the cuppers' subjects hooted approval, hoisted cups and glasses, and in some cases even shouted unlikely propositions. Onjace hurried forward with a little packet of alchemical powders in his hands. He dumped this into the water, then took a prudent step back. This was the summons a potent mix of substances that would rouse the shark's ire and maintain it for the duration of the contest. Blood in the water could attract and enrage a shark, but the summons would make it utterly drunk with the urge to attack, to leap, thrash, and roll at the women jumping back and forth across their little platforms. The Barangius sisters stepped forward to nearly the edge of the artificial pool, holding their traditional weapons, the pickhead axes and the short javelins, Andres and Pachero stood behind them and just to their left. The kappa remained standing by his chair, clapping his hands and grinning broadly. A black fin broke the surface of the pool. A tail thrashed. There was a brief splash of water, and the electric atmosphere of the crowd intensified. Locke could feel it washing over him, lust and fear entwined, a powerful animalistic sensation. The crowd had backed off about two yards from any edge of the pool, but still some in the front ranks were shaking nervously, and a few were trying to push their way farther back through the crowd, to the delight and derision of those around them. In truth, the shark couldn't have been longer than five or six feet. Some of those used at the shifting revel reached twice that length. Still, a fish like that could easily maim on the leap, and if it dragged a person down into the water with it, well, raw size would mean little in such an uneven contest. The Barangius sisters threw up their arms, then turned as one to the kappa. Playing deftly to the crowd, Barsavi put up his hands and looked around at his court. When they cheered him on, he stepped down between the ladies and received a kiss on the cheek from each of them. The water stirred just before the three of them. A sleek black shadow swept past the edge of the pool, then dove down into the lightless depths. Locke could feel five hundred hearts skip a beat, and the breath in five hundred throats catch. His own concentration seemed to peak, and he caught every detail of that moment as though it were frozen before him, 
from the eager smile on Barsavi's round red face to the rippling reflection of chandelier light on the water. Kamor! cried the Barangia's sister to the kappa's right. Again the noise of the crowd died, this time as though one gigantic windpipe had been slit. Five hundred pairs of eyes were fixed on the kappa and his bodyguards. We dedicate this death, she continued, to Kappa Vencarlo Barsavi, our lord and patron. Well does he deserve it, said the other. The shark exploded out of the pool immediately before them, a sleek, dark, devilish thing, with black lidless eyes and white teeth gaping. A ten-foot fountain of water rose up with it, and it half somersaulted in mid-air, falling forward, falling directly atop Kappa Barsavi. Barsavi put up his arms to shield himself. The shark came down with its mouth wide open around one of them. The fish's muscle-heavy body slammed hard against the wood floor, yanking Barsavi down with it. Those implacable jaws squeezed tight, and the kappa screamed as blood gushed from just beneath his right shoulder, running out across the floor and down the shark's blunt snout. His sons dashed forward to his aid. The Barangia's sister to the right looked down at the shark, shifted her weight fluidly to a fighting stance, raised her gleaming axe, and whirled with all the strength of her upper body behind the blow. Her blade smashed Pachero Barsavi's head just above his left ear. The tall man's optics flew off, and he staggered forward, his skull caved in, dead before his knees hit the deck. The crowd screamed and surged, and Locke prayed to the benefactor to preserve him long enough to make sense of whatever happened next. Andres gaped at his struggling father and his falling brother. Before he could utter a single word, the other Barangias stepped up behind him, reached around to press her javelin shaft up beneath his chin, and buried the spike of her axe in the back of his head. He spat blood and toppled forward, unmoving. The shark writhed and tore at the kappa's right arm, while he screamed and beat at its snout until his left hand was scraped bloody by the creature's abrasive skin. With a final sickening wrench, the shark tore his right arm completely off and slid backward into the water, leaving a broad red streak on the wooden deck behind it. Barsavi rolled away, spraying blood from the stump of his arm, staring at the bodies of his sons in uncomprehending terror. He tried to stumble up. One of the Barangia sisters kicked him back to the deck. There was a tumult behind the fallen kappa. Several red hands rushed forward, weapons drawn, hollering incoherently. What happened next was a blurry, violent mystery to Locke's untrained eyes, but the two half-clothed Barangias dealt with half a dozen armoured men with a brutality the shark would have envied. Javelins flew, axes whirled, throats opened and blood spurted. The last red hand was slumping to the deck, his face a jagged scarlet ruin, perhaps five seconds after the first had charged forward. There was brawling on the balconies now. Locke could see men pushing their way through the crowds, men in heavy grey oil cloaks, armed with crossbows and long knives. Some of Barsavi's guards stood back and did nothing. Some attempted to flee, others were taken from behind by their cloaked assailants and killed out of hand. Crossbow strings sang, bolts whirled through the air, there was a resounding bang to Locke's left. The great doors to the ballroom had slammed shut, seemingly of their own accord, and the clockwork mechanisms within were whirring and clicking. 
People battered at them uselessly. One of Barsavi's men pushed his way out of a crowd of panicking, shoving right people and raised a crossbow at the Baranja sisters, who stood over the wounded Kappa like lionesses guarding a kill. A dark streak fell on him from out of the shadowy corners of the ceiling. There was an inhuman screech, and the shot went far awry, hissing above the sisters' heads to strike the far wall. The guard batted furiously at the brown shape that flapped back into the air on long, curving wings. Then he put a hand to his neck, staggered, and fell flat on his face. Remain where you are, boomed a voice with an air of assured command. Remain where you are and attend. The command had a greater effect than Locke would have expected. He even felt his own fear dimming down, his own urge to flee vanishing. The wailing and screaming of the crowd quieted. The pounding on the great doors ceased. An eerie calm rapidly fell on what had been the exultant court of Kappa Barsavi not two minutes earlier. The hairs on the back of Locke's neck stood up. The change in the crowd was not natural. He might have missed it, but that he'd been under its influence before. There was sorcery in the air. He shivered despite himself. Gods, I hope coming here was as wise an idea as it seemed. The Grey King was suddenly there with them. It was as though he'd stepped out of a door that opened from thin air, just beside the kappa's chair. He wore his cloak and mantle, and he stepped with a hunter's easy assurance across the bodies of the red hands. At his side strode the falconer, with a gauntleted fist held up to the air. Vestris settled upon it, pulled in her wings, and screeched triumphantly. There were gasps and murmurs in the crowd. No harm will come to you, said the Grey King. I've done what harm I came to do tonight. He stepped up between the Baranjas sisters and looked down at Kappa Barsavi, who was writhing and moaning on the deck at his feet. Hello, Vencarlo. Cards, but you've looked better. Then the Grey King swept back his hood, and once again Locke saw those intense eyes, the hard lines of the face, the dark hair with streaks of grey, the lean, rugged countenance. And he gasped, because he finally realised what had nagged him during his first meeting with the Grey King, that odd familiarity. All the pieces of that particular puzzle were before him. The Grey King stood between the Barangius sisters, and it was now plain to Locke's eye that they were siblings, very nearly triplets.